You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 95. That's where we will be for the next three or four hours. If you've read the text this morning or during the week, you will see that we got to be in Psalm 95. We got to go back to Exodus 16 and 17, maybe Deuteronomy 6. And then we got to go forward to Hebrews 3 and 4, all with complications of their own. Uh, don't worry, I've already ordered lunch for you. Just stay here and we will be good. This text is, is a really beautiful text. It is complicated, and I hope to simplify it for us, but also show us the beauty that is in it. Go ahead and give you my big idea. It's simply this, that because of God's mercy, we can worship with joy and thanksgiving in every circumstance. Because of God's mercy, we can worship with joy and thanksgiving in every circumstance, and there will be two main points. One is to offer your hearts in worship to God. The other is do not harden your hearts against God. I don't really know what this means, but over the past couple of months, one of my bosses in particular keeps telling me this. There's always something in life to steal your joy. I don't know if he's planning to do something and just warning me or what. But I think he's right. When we think about our life, there are things that hold the promise of joy. Maybe we got a new job and we get there and it's not everything that we thought it would be. And so there's something that can steal your joy. And even if it's work that we love, there's parts of it that we don't. The holiday season is filled with things like this. There's the hope of joyous time with family and then there's also the despair of time with family. These can be small things, just you know, the annoying little things and idiosyncrasies of family that you haven't had to deal with in a while and you visited them. But they can be deeper than this. They can be greater pains, deeper griefs, the empty chair that was once filled by a family member. And what this psalm tells us is there's always something to steal your joy, but there's also always someone to give it to you in the midst of every circumstance. Now, before I get into it, I, I want to say quickly, that doesn't mean that we can only have joy. Now, what do I mean by that? In the midst of those pains and those griefs, even as we celebrate and experience the pain and grief of the holiday season and the pain and grief in our own lives, inwardly, outwardly, in whatever circumstance we may have, the Bible says we can grieve. The Bible says that we can lament. And it even commands us to come before God and cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. This is not a sermon that says the only thing you can feel is joy. But it is a sermon, it is a text that says joy is always possible. It is never wrong to come before God in worship with joyful hearts and thanksgiving. This is not a burden to us, it is a kindness, it is his mercy. That he allows us, no matter how dark our circumstances are, to come before him with joy because of who he is and what he has done. So I ask you to turn to Psalm 95 and see this in the text. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. Listen to verse one through 
through 11 of Psalm 95. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. We can jump right in, and it ought not to be hard to see why I say that we can worship with joy and thanksgiving. It's clearly right there in the text. I don't need to go to Exodus and Hebrews to to tell you this. Look at verse 1. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. In that sense, my big idea is extremely simple. Here it is, joy in verse 1. Thanksgiving in verse 2. And why can we always come to him with joy and thanksgiving? He is the rock of our salvation. We begin here with worship. There's always reason to worship no matter circumstances because God is the rock of our salvation and our salvation is sure in him. This imagery of the rock of our salvation, it, it draws to mind several different things. It draws to mind a sturdiness an immovability, a foundation that we can build our lives upon. It cannot be shaken. These things are true, and you'll you'll see this throughout the Psalter, but I think also, given the context of the second half of Psalm 95, I want to tell you this, that the rock of our salvation also means that he he provides his presence and his provision. How is it that a rock does that? There are many things that set the context for psalms. Sometimes as you read through the Psalter, you'll see that there's something called a superscription. It'll say, you know, this is a mascal of David, something like that. Or it'll say, when David was being hunted down by his enemies. And then you'll, you'll see a psalm. This psalm doesn't have a superscription, but it does provide some context in the second half. This Meribah and Massah, which I'll go into detail later, This is the beginning of the wilderness journey for the people of God. They've just been delivered out of the Exodus, and now they come out of slavery in Egypt. They walk through the parted Red Sea, and they come out of that, and then they go to a place called Meribah and Massah. There they don't have any food and water, but God provides food and water for them. This particular thing right here, the the rock of their salvation, God provides his presence and water at the rock. 
He commands Moses there to strike the rock and water flows from it to provide water for them. This is a sign of provision for his people, the rock is. But it's also a sign of his presence. When God tells Moses to strike the rock, he tells him something else. Not just to strike it, he says, I will stand before the rock. The presence of God right there at the rock and then his provision in the water. This here is telling us that we can be joyful and thankful in all circumstances because the rock of our salvation is sure. He's steady, he's immovable, and his presence is with us, and he will always provide what we need. If you come on a Wednesday night to one of our Wednesday night services, you'll often hear us pray that we would sing loudly. Right? And it's... Maybe you've never been in a church that does that, but it comes from things like this, texts like this that tell us to shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout joyfully. Shout triumphantly. Shout triumphantly later. This is a volume sort of thing. I've asked them to turn the volume up for me just so you can see it displayed. We do this in our songs as well. We often command one another as we sing to sing loudly to our God. To tell each other about how great our God is. Consider the first song that we sang, Oh Great Is Our God. Oh Great Is Our God, so we should worship greatly. No song is too loud. You said it earlier. No orchestra too stately. To hail the majesty of our king. So lift your voices loud as we sing. You may not have realized it this morning, but you've already lived in obedience to Psalm 95 verses 1 and 2 because we have sung loudly. One of my favorite things about being at NBC, of course, is all you people. But also when I get to sit up here and I hear you sing. It is a wonderful encouragement, and often I stop and I look around so I can hear the people of God singing the truth of God and who he is to my soul. I encourage you that if you're in a dark circumstance, show up to worship, sing loudly, but also listen to the voices of the people of God sing triumphantly because their salvation is yours. Listen to them sing joyfully because the rock of their salvation is also the rock of your salvation. We can worship with joy and thanksgiving no matter the circumstance because God is our Savior. He's also worthy of worship because he's our Savior and he is the creator. Look at this connection in verse 3 to verses 1 and 2. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. Now this is just Christianity 101. There is one God and he is above all things. If you want to read a book that exalts this higher than any other book, you have to read the Old Testament book of Isaiah. There he repeatedly says there is no other God. There is not one. There is no other redeemer. There is no other savior. There is no other God. There is no other rock he even says. He is exalting the praise of his God to call his people to them in worship to him and trust in him. Why? Because he is not only their savior, but he is also the creator of all things. Verse 4, the depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. 
The depths of the earth of his are his and the mountain peaks are his. You have to understand poetry to really understand what's going on here. It's not just that the depths of the earth are his and he's got that and then the mountain peaks are his. And everything in between, like, I don't know, it might be somebody else's. The sea is his and it's the dry land. Well, what he's saying is he's using the highest point and the lowest point as a merism to say everything is his. He rules on the highest mountain peak. He's there in the bottom of the depths of the earth because everything is his. He has made it. The sea is his. His hands form the dry land. Everything in creation belongs to him, and therefore everything in creation owes him worship. He is our savior. He is our creator. He is also our shepherd. Come, let us worship and bow down. Verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Do you see what he has done? He's talked about the creation of things outside of people, but now he's turned to the people of God and said he's not just the one who made those things. He's the one who made us. Therefore, he is worthy of worship. For he is, in verse 7, our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. He is our shepherd in this text. Did you see it in verse 7? He is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Now here, poetry, understanding poetry again is helpful. It says we are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. Really, if you wanted to take the Hebrew literally, it would say the sheep of his hand. Now, we would expect it to go the other way around. That we are the sheep of his pasture and we are the people of his hand. That he is made us as his people. They mix the two that causes you to stop and say we are his sheep because he is our shepherd. And so here in these first three chunks of text, we see that we can always worship because God is our savior. He is the creator of all things and he is our faithful shepherd. In fact, you might put it like this. We can worship him because he is our savior and our savior is the creator and our creator is our faithful shepherd. What this means is that the one who has worked salvation for us, there's nothing in all of creation that can take it away. He's the one who made all things. He controls all things. And he has made us and he shepherds us. And no matter what happens, the one who saved us and created all things, it's his power, his hand that made all things is the one that guides us through every circumstance. Let me put it this way. Part of the reason I've said because of his mercy, we can worship with joy and thanksgiving in every circumstance, is I don't know if you noticed, but in verses one through seven, those things will never change. Verses one through seven, there's nothing about who God is and what he's done that can be undone by anyone else. So no matter whatever whatever circumstance you're going through, you can always go back to Psalm 95, verses one through seven, and find a reason to praise our God. Not only praise him, but praise him with joy. Praise him with thanksgiving and praise him triumphantly because whatever enemy you face, they cannot stand against the God who formed all things and holds you in his hand. Nothing in Psalm 95, 1-7 will ever change. He is God. He does not change. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is as true for the people of God when they heard it first in Psalm 95 as it is for us who trust him in 20. 23. 
So what is it, given this beautiful reality of who God is and what he's done for us, that he's our savior, the creator, and our shepherd, why do we ever lack joy? Why are our hearts bent toward complaining and grumbling rather than thanksgiving? Usually our gratitude and our joy are tied to our expectations. And if our expectations are not tied to the promises of God, then grumbling and complaining will ensue. Like I said earlier, you may have gotten a new job and you had expectations for what that was gonna be and they weren't fulfilled and so what did you do? You grumbled and complained. You had expectations when you got married that your spouse was gonna solve all your problems. You found out they didn't. I mean, if somebody did, please let me know, but they didn't, I don't think. Kimberly, you came really close. And so you started to grumble and complain rather than have a heart of thanksgiving and joy. Maybe you're looking for that spouse to solve all your problems and they still haven't come along and so instead of giving, having joy and giving thanks, you're grumbling and complaining about your situation. Maybe you thought having kids would solve all your problems. I am here to tell you they will not. They might, might create more. Maybe you had a vision for what your life would be at your age now. You had an expectation. It's gone unmet. And so instead of looking at what God has done for you, you look at what you lack and you grumble and complain. If I could talk to the kids for a second, children, greetings. It's just my kids. There's a couple back there. Okay, here we go. Do you ever grumble and complain? Yeah? Oh, we got one yes, a couple no's. I'm willing to bet that you do. I know most of you. I spend a lot of time with most of you. And it's usually because you want something and your parents might not give it to you. Uh, they may even say you can have something and they don't provide it. Your expectation is of one thing, and you look forward with joy to this thing. It's a toy. It's a piece of candy. It's, it's dessert. It's, you know, all those things essential for life that you need. And your parent says no. And so you grumble and complain. There are things you look forward to in life. You're probably really good at a few things. Maybe you're good at a sport. Maybe you can draw really well. Maybe you can sing really well at a young age. And there's expectations that come with that. That you're going to be really good at that forever and you're going to be the best. And everybody's always going to praise you. And as, as life goes on, that may not happen. Your expectations might go unmet. You have a vision for your life. Your parents might have hopes for you. And they go unmet and we tend to grumble and complain. Now, I want to tell you, hope for good things. Pray for good things. Pray that you would be really good at those things for a long time. Pray that people would see them and honor that and take joy in it. But it might not always go your way. I can tell you as a 40-year-old man, 40 years old, that is old to the kids, not everybody, that I thought I would be in a particular place in my life at 40 some of those things are far greater than I could ever imagine. 
but some of them have fallen way short of expectations. Can I tell you the one thing that has remained the same? It's not, it's not my friends. It's not my parents. It's not me. That is not the constant that can bring me joy. If your joy is in those things, you will grumble and complain. But there is a God who made you, who formed you with his hands, the same hands that formed the earth itself and hangs the stars in place. And he loves you. And he wants you to set your expectations on him. Because no matter what you go through, whether it's good or bad, there's one thing that you can always bank on. That if you trust in him, he will shepherd you and guide you and be with you through everything you face. Adults, this is true for you too. <laughs> right? Often the best part of my sermons is what I say to kids because I have to, you know, bring it down here. It's true for you as well. You're probably thinking there, of course, none of you are quite 40, I'm sure. We're 25, we're still young and getting after it. Maybe every desire that you had, every vocational goal that you had, every relational goal that you had has been met. I'm willing to bet that it hasn't. But what this text says, that your Savior, your Creator, and your Shepherd, those things never change. You can always have joy and thanksgiving in the midst of them because here's the promise that God has for you. No matter what you face, he will be your shepherd to walk you through them. If, if you bank your joy, your thanksgiving, your shouting triumphantly to God on that reality, you will always have reason in every circumstance to shout for joy in the Lord. So kids, people who have put their faith in Jesus and those among us who haven't, I encourage you this day to put your faith in him and bank your hope, your joy, your thanksgiving, your shouting to the Lord on his presence, his promises, his being your savior, your creator, and your faithful shepherd. It would be really great if Psalm 95 ended there. It doesn't. And it's even better. I mean, I can't say it would be great about God's word if it said something different. Pastor Joshua gave me the side eye. Here we take kind of a detour, it seems, and it says this in verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah is on the day at Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my, my anger, they will not enter my rest. Man, this seems like a detour. Where did it come from? Somebody just slap it on the end of it? Like, I don't know. I like these words. Let me just throw it on there. This is kind of the other side. He's commanded us positively, shout joyfully, triumphantly with thanksgiving, sing loud songs to God because he's great. This is the other side of that. Do not harden your heart, right? Offer your hearts in worship to God, but now do not harden your hearts against God. And he gives a very specific example about not hardening, hardening your heart. He goes back to these places called Meribah, and Massah. 
What is he talking about? In the wilderness where your fathers tested me. Well, in order to go back to Meribah and Massah, we have to go back to the book of Exodus. I mentioned this earlier. I think it helps us understand the rock of salvation from earlier. But here in, in the book of Exodus, in Meribah and Massah, the people of God have just been brought out from slavery in Egypt. This is in fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And the way that God did it, he didn't do it in secret. He did it in public display. God's people were in slavery for hundreds of years. He heard their crying and their groaning. And so he confronts Pharaoh and he shows through ten plagues that he is the king of kings. He's greater than Pharaoh. He's God of gods. He's greater than the Egyptian gods. I think that provides part of the context for the first half of the psalm as well. And then what does he do? He brings them out. Then they face the sea. They can't cross it. And so what does God do through Moses? He tells Moses to take his staff, put it in the ground. The sea divides. Dry ground appears. Do you hear that in the first part of the psalm? The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. This isn't just calling back to creation. This is calling back the redemption of God's people in the Exodus. That he gathered the seas on each side. And it says they walked across on dry ground. The creator God is there. Savior. He walks them through, and when they get on the other side, they do exactly what the first half of Psalm 95 says. Moses and the Israelites sing a song. The Lord is a warrior. He is our Savior. Miriam also writes a song about the Lord's greatness and that the fact that the chariot and their horses, the armies of the Pharaoh, have been thrown into the sea. The enemies have been defeated. God's people have been saved, and they exalt God in worship and the reason we get to the second half of Psalm 95 is though they worship him in the beginning, they quickly turn their hearts against him. Because where they find themselves, they were in a land, even though they were in slavery, at least they had a house. But they walk out here, and now they're in the middle of the wilderness. And you know what they lack? Food and water. And so what do the people do? Despite the fact that they have seen the mighty power of God, greater than Pharaoh, delivering from slavery, greater than the gods of Egypt, they say, what are we going to do now? It would be better for us to have died in Egypt than to bring us out here and die. And so what does God do? Well, they come to a place where there's some water, but it's a little sour. So he tells Moses to cut down a tree, throw it in the water, and the water becomes sweet for them to be able to drink. They don't have food, so what does he do? He provides for them quail, and then he provides them manna in the wilderness for what will be 40 years. Daily, he gives them something to eat. But quickly after that, the people go to another place, and there's not any water there. Now, at this point, you might expect, this is a God who has shown that he's more powerful than the greatest empire at the time, that he's greater than every other God that they've known, and he's provided food and water in the wilderness. You might expect they would then say, God, oh yes, God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, one who sees in his hands and he forms a dry land, you certainly in the wilderness can provide us water, but they don't. They say the exact same thing. Lord, did you bring us now here to die? When we made it here, we're going to die? No. All right, you brought us here. Now are we going to die out here? Answer, No. But here's what it says about them in Exodus 16 and 17. It says that they tested the Lord. 
And it says in Exodus 17 that they tested him by saying, is God really among us? Then they demanded that God give them water. Now, what does it mean to test the Lord? What is going on in this text? Two previous times, before the people test God, it says that God tested them. God tested them to see if they would obey his commands. That's what it says. And as the people then turn to God, the testing of God is essentially turning the tables on God and saying, you tested us to see if we would obey your commands. How about we test you to see if you will obey our commands? We don't have water. Give us water and in the way that we design. We don't trust you. We're in authority. In other words, essentially testing God is a battle of who's ultimately in authority and whose plan is better. The Lord in his kindness provides them water. But not through the means that they desire, through his own means. And he tells Moses, I will stand before the rock and I will strike it. And you will strike it and I will provide them water. It says that he was disgusted with them for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. And yet he was their faithful shepherd the whole time. He provided daily for a people who would rebel against him, but they did not enter his rest. A question that comes to us in the midst of this text is this. What circumstance do you face or would you face? What thing would you have to lose? What person would you have to lose in order to test God? In order to look at him and demand that he give you what you want based on your terms. Maybe you've already been there. What this text reminds us of is that our hearts are bent toward being hardened toward him in our circumstances. And another key in this text is that it says this, where their fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. They knew what God was capable of, and they still tested him. They still said, you must live according to our demands. When we think about this, we have to remind ourselves of the first half of Psalm 95, that he is our savior, that he is our creator, that he is our shepherd, just as the people in the Exodus should have known the same thing. There is a testing that is good, however. The reason I say this is a turning of the tables is the Lord not only tested them in Meribah and Massah, but he also, there's a positive testing throughout the Psalms. Let me give you two examples. Psalm 26, 2 says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind, for your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. Psalm 138, 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. What should you do when you're in a difficult circumstance? You should pray to the Lord to test your heart, not you testing him. Every circumstance in your life, here's what we tend to do. We set it up as a test for God's faithfulness to us. Lord, if I get this promotion, then I'll know that you're with me. If you heal me of this disease, then I'll trust that you're with me. 
If you give me a friend group that I like and doesn't annoy me, then I'll believe that you're with me. If you give me the house, if you give me the car, if you give me the place, if you give me whatever, if you give me the clothes, then I'll know that you're with me. This is a testing of the Lord, and so our hearts tend to take our circumstances and test God to see if he is faithful. You realize that in every circumstance, the opposite is happening. In every circumstance, God's providential hand is bringing you into something to show you your own heart that he already knows. In his kindness, he is testing you and purifying of your sin to make you holy. And so when you go before God and you say, if this happens, then I'll know that you're with me, know that he is exposing the darkness that is in your heart and he desires to root it out. And if you find yourself in that place, then pray Psalm 26 too. Lord, test me, try me. Examine my heart and my mind because I know they're not where they need to be. But I know that your faithful love will guide me through this because you're my creator, my savior, and my shepherd. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns and show me my heart that I might offer it to you in worship that in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of this wilderness, in the midst of this trial, I might stand up and sing triumphantly, joyfully, and with thanksgiving that you are my God, that you are my faithful creator, sustainer, and shepherd. Do not test the Lord. Let him test you. And where this text leads us is don't test the Lord, but let him test you that you might find rest in him. Now we read the last part of Psalm 95, and it says this. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. This is true for the, for the wilderness generation. They rejected God from beginning to end. It wasn't just one thing. It's not like God said, oh, you messed up. There it was. Okay, you're out. For 40 years, they rejected him. And for 40 years, they questioned whether or not his presence was really going to be with him. This is in Exodus 16 and 17, but ultimately exemplified in Exodus 32 to 34. That Moses goes up onto the mountain into God's presence. God is with them. And what do they do? Moses has been up there a long time, man. What do you think happened to him? I don't know. Well, how about we make our own gods? So they make a golden calf for themselves. Why? Because testing God is about questioning his presence and about who's in control. If I make an idol with my own hands, then I can say, it is mine. In the same way that the Lord made all of creation, the seas and the dry land, and they are his and therefore we answer to him. An idol of our own making answers to us. There is something that feels comforting about it. We can see it. It's right there. There's our God. It will answer our demands because we make it answer our demands. It is controlled by us. But we are to be controlled by God. We are to be under his authority, not God under ours. And so this is a people that's not a one-time thing where God said, oh, one time, you're out. But for 40 years, they wandered from him in their hearts. And so they did not enter his rest. What does that mean? 
Well, in the Old Testament, in this story, the place of rest was the promised land that God had given them. His presence was with them, but they weren't to remain in the wilderness. God said that he would bring them out of slavery and give them a land that he had promised all the way back to their father Abraham before that. So another layer to this is even as they get to the promised land, on the edge of it, 40 years later, they send some people out into the land that the God had promised them. Remember, the Savior, the Creator, the Shepherd. And they send spies in the land, and they come back, and they say, those people are really big. I don't, I don't know if we can really take that land. There was one, Caleb, said, we got it. We got it. Why? Because their hearts were still bent in rebellion against God in the midst of their circumstances rather than trusting him as the creator who formed the foundation of the earth. Surely he could take out some large people. Their expectations, their joy, their thanksgiving were not based on God's promises, but their plan and their design. And therefore, they did not worship him with joy and with thanksgiving. And they did not experience victory and therefore shout to him triumphantly. So they did not enter his rest. They ultimately did not enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness. Now here's the question that comes to us. What in the world does that have to do with me? You've been thinking this for 45 minutes. What in the world does this have to do with me? Is this true of the new covenant believer? Is it true that I could have begun my journey with Christ and on my way to being with him for eternity, somehow I nullify the promise? This is a good question. And I'm so thankful that the author of Hebrews in the New Testament answers it for me. This is what we read earlier in Hebrews 4. Pastor Joshua read it for us. And I want to be very clear up front. Let's just get right to it here in Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. What does it have to do with us? Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. Verse 2. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? So here we are, same. We heard the message, they heard the message, but it didn't benefit them. Why? Since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. This is the difference between the people of God in the new covenant and the old. You could be in old covenant relationship with God without having faith in him in the new covenant. The law is written on our hearts. The spirit dwells within us and we enter by faith. Therefore, if you sitting here this morning have put your faith in Jesus, you have entered the rest of God and you will enter the new creation. He has made certain of it. Why? Because the, the creator, your savior, and your shepherd has come into the world and secured his presence with you forever in Jesus. God himself, after his people denied him and they went into exile, he entered into the stage of history in the person of Jesus to take on our sin, to die on the cross, to be buried, then to rise again, to overcome sin and death, the darkest possible circumstance. And now he, that one, sits at the right hand of the Father and he shepherds you now and he will bring you home. You will enter the rest. If you know yourself not to be a Christian this morning, 
I encourage you to come and trust in him today. That this creator can be your savior and your faithful shepherd if you put your hope, your trust in him and bank on his promises. He is good and righteous and true. And his promises will never disappoint you. So what are we to do practically? Mark, that's a lot of Bible stuff, thanks, whatever. But what do I do practically? I love the fact that the author of Hebrews tells us this too. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you. After quoting at length Psalm 95, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Verse 13, But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Encourage one another daily. This is the practical application here that the author of Hebrews has for us. And I want to tell you this, that there are some of you that are saying, but Mark, you don't understand my dark circumstance. You don't get it. It's deeper and darker than anything that you could possibly imagine. I want to say two things. One, that might be true. Two, the Lord knows it and he can carry you through it. Three, then let me know. One, as just a brother in Christ. Two, as one of your under-shepherds in the church, this says, encourage one another. Go back to Psalm 95. You were never meant to carry it alone. Do I need to go back to Psalm 95 and read it for you? Look at all the plural forms of worship. This is not you by yourself gritting your teeth and making it through. Come, Psalm 95, let us joyfully shout to the Lord. Verse 2, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly. The depths of the earth are in his hand. Let me skip down. Verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is what? My God? No, our God. He is our maker. We are the people of his pasture. If you're sitting there and somehow you think that the circumstance that you have is too dark for you to make it through, it might be alone. But Psalm 95 and the author of Hebrews constantly tells us that we can do this together. Let us worship. So if you feel like you're trapped in a sin and some secret sin that you can't get out of and it's stealing your joy, you have reason to have joy this morning because there's people in this room that long to carry that burden with you. They long to hear it and not to shame you, but to walk with you to the throne of God to have help in the time of need. In fact, this is where Hebrews 4 ends. Look at this, verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to, the, to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
There's something about sin that the enemy convinces you that you can't share it with your brother or sister in Christ. And the word commands us, bring it to us and confess your sins one to another. The shame will drive you away from his people. The joy of the Lord and forgiveness of sin will drive you to his people. The enemy will tell you, you can't come and worship, not with that sin. And the Lord says, come and worship joyfully because of forgiveness of sin in Christ. Sing triumphantly over your sin because Jesus has crushed the enemy. So encourage one another daily. This is why we sing worship songs. This is why we pray through our membership directory. It's why we meet in small groups. It's why we should send texts. It's why we should make calls. If you haven't seen somebody in the gathering for a while, hit them up. Let them know we're here and we're praying for you. We want to carry your burdens with you. So encourage each other daily as long as it is called today. Second, be in the word. It's interesting as the author of Hebrews goes through this unpacking Sabbath and rest for the people of God, that we rest in him now because we rest from our work and rest in Christ's work, that we look forward to the new creation. He then says this, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. I wonder, I wonder if the author of Hebrews says this is the way that you can have the Lord test you. Sharper than any double-edged sword, what does it do? Penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it goes to the deepest part of you and digs out sin and offers it up to God in thanksgiving and joy for the forgiveness that we receive in Christ. It shapes us into the image of Jesus as he walks with us through his word and his word reminds us of his promises. I wonder if some of us lack joy and thanksgiving in what God has done because we simply are ignorant of what he has done. That our natural eyes look around and we don't see him at work, but his word is telling us over and over again what he has accomplished that cannot be undone and that his presence is with us. Be in his word. Encourage one another daily. Be in his word and I've already alluded to it in Hebrews 4, pray. Pray for each other. Let us come to him together. Because he is walking with us. He is our faithful creator, our sustainer, our shepherd, our savior. And he wants to hear your prayers. We, we, we sang a song about this earlier. That he is great and high and sovereign and majestic and glorious beyond imagination. And yet he lends his ear to us when we pray. This is at the heart of the Psalms. Most of the Psalms are prayers to God. He listens to us. So go before him in prayer. These things, the community of God's people, encouraging one another daily, being in his word and coming together in prayer and worship, these things will sustain you on your journey. Because with the author of Hebrews, the big metaphor that he has is that you are on a wilderness journey. That just as the people of God have been saved from slavery out of Egypt and brought out in the Exodus and now they're in the wilderness, as they await the promised land, that's you. 
that you have experienced, people of God, the salvation that we have in Christ, and you are awaiting the fullness of that promise in the new creation where there will be no more sin, pain, death, sickness, any of that. It will all be gone, and yet we walk in a wilderness now where all those things try us. And the author of Hebrews says, let us draw near to him. Encourage one another daily and be in his word so that it can encourage you with his promises and dig out any sin that you might offer to him in praise. So Psalm 95 tells us this, I believe, that because of God's mercy, and for us, because of God's mercy in Christ, we together, as the people of God, can worship with joy and thanksgiving in every circumstance. My boss is right. There is always something to steal your joy. But Psalm 95 gives us a greater truth. There is always one ready to give it. Remember that he is your savior, that he is your creator, that he is your shepherd, and his promise is that he will walk with you through any circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it reveals who you are and your promises to us. We thank you that in Christ we now have better promises. And because of the death and resurrection of your son, the creator, our savior, and our shepherd is Jesus. That his presence is with us and that he will never Leave us, but he is with us to the end of the age. Father, we thank you that no matter our circumstance, that we have reason to rejoice. We have reason to give thanks, and we have reason to shout triumphantly. We thank you that you are faithful to your word, that you are the God above all gods. We pray now that as we sing, that we would honor the words of Psalm 95, that we would sing, in fact, triumphantly, joyfully, and with thanksgiving, because your mercy is more than our sin. Your kindness is more than our circumstance, and your presence will never be taken from us. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.